You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual They called it last week the gay sonic boom. It was, of course, Michael Sam, the football player from Missouri who got drafted into the NFL, the first openly gay uh, football player ever drafted into the NFL. There have been other gay football players, all of whom came out after their careers were over, going all the way back to the 70s when David Copay uh, wrote a terrific memoir about being gay in the NFL in the 60s and 70s. But Michael Sam, first openly gay football player, drafted into the NFL. They called it the gay sonic boom. And that wasn't him being drafted. It was him in the living room where he was waiting for the news, turning to his boyfriend, who is a swimmer, uh, and kissing him on the lips. And it was just a quick peck, a quick celebratory uh, kiss shared between significant others because of this major sort of achievement milestone in life. Uh, and people lost their shit. People really did shit their pants all over America because this was being broadcast on ESPN. Now it's just known as The Kiss. And everybody had to take sides about The Kiss and whether it was appropriate because there were children out there watching ESPN with their dads when these two dudes kissed. And of course, we then have to have the tiresome debate about what do you tell your children about this thing that they've just seen and there was a great tweet that I saw kicking around. I wish I could credit uh, the original author, um, but I, I don't know who you are. Uh, great tweet, though, that said, if you feel like you need to explain Michael Sam and that kiss to your kids, you might want to ask your kids to explain Michael Sam and that kiss to you. You're the one who has a problem, probably not your kids. Something else also happened on that day, that Saturday, uh, that Michael Sam was drafted into the NFL. And that was Conchita Wurst won the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, Eurovision, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is this insane, campy song contest that, that, that sweeps all of Europe up in its fervor every year. Uh, countries uh, all nominate through some sort of American Idol-style process uh, one song, one singer to represent them in this big contest. There are limitations on the, the length of the songs. can only be three minutes. Only six performers, I think, can be on stage at any one time. And every year there's just this contest and it's really gay. And some countries in Europe have a problem with the really gay aspect of it because some countries in Europe, Slovakia, Russia, uh, are really super duper uh, insanely homophobic. In fact, they're uh, codifying their homophobia into law and persecuting their lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender citizens in those places. And what happened at Eurovision w was kind of amazing. Uh, Conchita Wurst won. Conchita Wurst is an Austrian, and congratulations to Austria and all the Austrians out there listening. Conchita Wurst was the Austrian Eurovision Song Contest uh, entry, and she is a bearded drag queen, about as gay, about as effeminate as gay men get. And that both of these things happened on the same day, at roughly the same time. Michael Sam, total masculine gay dude getting drafted into the NFL and Conchita Wurst, total screaming bearded drag queen, swish a thon winning the Eurovision song contest. Those things happening simultaneously. That was really meaningful for me. Uh, and I thought important, and we should pause here to reflect on its meaning. We've seen in the past couple of years, a lot of different kinds of people starting to come out. We've had our first openly gay 
a professional basketball player, Jason Collins, who is amazing and so brilliant and so smart. And his story uh, about his life is just so, so moving. Jason Collins came out. He now plays for the Nets. Uh, he was picked up, and then the Nets took off, and they're in the playoffs, whatever the basketball playoffs are. He's in them. And, of course, if you know the Nets had picked up uh, Jason Collins and then tanked, we would hear from the religious right that God hates openly gay basketball players. But the Nets picked up Jason Collins and soared. So God must love openly gay basketball players. And now Michael Sam. And what came back to me at that moment, I was walking down the street in Seattle, reading my phone and reading about Michael Sam and reading about Conchita Wurst, was something I read when Jason Collins came out. Uh, and, and this person said, we need more people like Jason Collins to come out because it destroys the stereotypes about gay men. And what that person meant and that stereotype, that stereotype is Conchita Wurst, right? That stereotype is that all gay men are effeminate, flaming, swishy, dress-wearing, Eurovision Song Contest obsessives. My husband, Terry, he's a Eurovision Song Contest obsessive himself. Um, and that this, you know, all gay men are hairdressers and set decorators than just flaming queens. Uh, and we need to destroy that stereotype. And it was that particular phrase, not round off that stereotype, not compliment that stereotype with other truths about gay men, but destroy it. And I have a problem with that because this idea that masculine gay men are somehow non-existent is something that if you're a gay person in the world, uh, you know not to be true and have always known. And what the simultaneous triumph of Michael Sam and Conchita Wurst emphasized was there's room enough in the culture for guys who confirm the stereotypes, like Conchita Wurst, and guys who disrupt those stereotypes, like Michael Sam. That there's room enough for both to succeed and both can be awesome in their own particular and unique ways. And I gotta say, and I'm not, I don't want to be a dick about this, but it is telling and revealing that it is the Conchita Wursts of the world, the gender nonconforming gay men, the fairies, the faggots, the swishes, the guys who couldn't hide, who've been out for decades. And it is the more masculine gay men who have only recently become to come out en masse. I mentioned David Cope earlier, the first professional football player ever to come out after his career was over. Totally gender-conforming, total dude, masculine as hell, uh, super hot, and really smart. Read his book. But it bears emphasizing that the swishes were out first. The people who couldn't hide were out first. They didn't have the option, the hairdressers, the swishes, the Conchita Wursts of the world, of waiting until things got better to borrow a phrase, waiting until the environment was more generally accepting than it used to be. And how did that environment, you know, the environment in which we live, how did it become more accepting? How did it become a world in which the Jason Collinses and Michael Samses of the world now feel more comfortable coming out in the middle of their professional sports career, in Jason Collins' case, uh, at the outset of the professional sports career, in Michael Sam's case? The world got better because other people were out earlier. Other people were out and fighting, and it was almost invariably the people who couldn't hide. It was the swishes. It was, it was the Conchita Wurst. It was the drag queens. It was the bull dykes. It was the trans women. They were the fighters. They were the first to the ramparts. Because when you can't hide, you got to fight. 
And those folks who were out there fighting and have been out there fighting for decades and out for decades and were never in because it was impossible for them to be in created this world in which it is now safe for someone like Michael Sam to come out. But let's pause at this moment while we're celebrating the Jason Collinses, celebrating the Michael Sams to also celebrate and embrace the Conchita Wursts of the world because no Conchita Wurst, no Michael Sam. Okay, coming up in today's show, Slate's Dear Prudence, Emily Yaffe and I, we face off dueling advice givers uh, in a new segment we're calling Second Opinion. And we have a researcher here to talk with us about feeder gainer, the fetish of feeding somebody until they are enormous, which a caller has a question about today. All on today's show, coming right up. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old lesbian from Tennessee. My girlfriend and I, we've been together for about two years now, and uh, she's bisexual, and she keeps bringing up the fact that she's concerned about not being able to ever sleep with a guy again if we were to, you know, stay together forever. And I just don't feel like there's a difference between me giving up sleeping with other women. So... You know, what do you think? What's the difference there? According to my frequently consulted copy here of The Protocols of the Elders of Bion, which is my new favorite publication, the rap is what you're supposed to say, what I'm supposed to say, is that it is an anti-bisexual stereotype and an anti evidence of an anti-bisexual bias to suggest that a bisexual person is any less capable of making and keeping a monogamous commitment than an opposite sexual person, uh, than a monosexual Um you know that a bisexual who's partnered with a woman or partnered with a man uh, is as capable of honoring and keeping and being happy and content in that uh, committed monogamous relationship as any heterosexual. And you know it's funny for me to say that because I look at you know opposite sexuals, monosexuals who are in committed long-term relationships, and I don't see people who are happy about monogamy necessarily. And there's so many calls that come in, people are being made miserable by monogamy, and I don't think we're naturally monogamous, and it's a bit of a struggle. So I don't think it's necessarily anti-bi to suggest that monogamy is any less of a perfect fit for bisexuals than it is for monosexuals, which we talk about on the show all the time. But that said, I get calls and I get letters every day uh, from bisexuals in long-term committed relationships with a partner of just one sex and they are dying for a little of the other sex, whatever it is. They miss – Partnered with a woman, they miss being with a man, part of man, miss being with a woman, they're in this monogamous relationship, whether they do. And so these letters come in so frequently that I just can't blithely say that your girlfriend, who is bisexual, who's made this commitment to you, won't feel at some point in the future this ache, this desire to be with a dude for the very dudenesses of the dude, not the just to be with somebody else, something different, some strange as the kids like to say about 15 or 20 years ago, uh, it is highly likely that at some point down the road, she will want some of that other stuff that she likes as well. Um, it's highly likely that somewhere down the road, you will want some other stuff too. You'll just want some other girl, some other women. You'll want some strange. She'll want some strange with a dick. You might want some strange with a pussy. That seems to me where you guys can come to some sort of understanding and agreement. You should recognize that for her as a bisexual person to make a commitment to you and you alone is to sacrifice some part of her sexual orientation, identity, some hugely significant 
chunk of her sexual expression and desire, which is for dudes as well. And you should honor that sacrifice. And she should recognize that you are making a sacrifice too when you make a monogamous commitment because one person cannot be all things to another person sexually, even to a monosexual sexually. So what you would do, I think, is you agree that to be with each other and you're going to make this monogamous commitment, she's going to give up other women and men and you're going to give up other women. And perhaps that's something that you can revisit down the road. Many years into your relationship, if you've laid this foundation, after you've been successfully and hopefully effortlessly monogamous for many, many years and there's a lot of trust there and you're really committed to each other and maybe then giving her permission if there comes a time or there comes a man that she wants to get with, giving her permission to go and do that won't seem so scary or destabilizing. Likewise, giving you permission perhaps to step out on her at some point with some woman who comes along that you're into won't seem so scary to her either. Particularly if you getting permission to maybe step out with some other girl is bundled together with her getting permission to step out with some other boy or some other girl because you never know what's going to come along and draw her eye or yours over the long haul. You know, years ago, I gave some advice to a lesbian who was partnered with a bi woman uh, in which I said, if you don't want to be with somebody who also wants to get with a dude with a dick every once in a while, don't date bi women. And that was trotted out on a lot of bisexual blogs, as evidence of my biphobia. I was telling lesbians not to date bisexuals, uh, which isn't the case. I was telling a lesbian dating a bisexual that you should probably cool with your partner wanting to get with a dude as well every once in a while. I'm generally pro-openness. I'm generally pro-non-monogamy. I wasn't telling lesbians not to date bisexuals. I was telling a lesbian dating a bisexual that she should probably be down with the fact that her partner is indeed bisexual and may want to act on that from time to time. And so I think she should get cool with it is what I was telling her. And that's kind of what I'm telling you, caller. You're with someone who's bi. You've chosen to be with someone who's bi. She's being honest with you about the fact that she doesn't think over the very long haul that she can go dickless all her life. She wants to be with you. She choo-choo chooses you. But it will be a struggle for her to stay off the dick forever. So the balls are in your court kind of. You have to decide if giving her permission to at some point get with a guy again with your blessings – is something that you have the capacity to do. And if it's not something you have the capacity to do, then you tell her that. That is something I will never be able to sign off on. And then she can make an informed decision about whether you're the right partner for her. Because if she can't live without Dick forever and she knows that of herself, then she probably can't be the partner that you need your partner to be if you require strict perfectly executed, lifelong monogamy in your committed relationship. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old breeder living on the East Coast, and I have a problem. My lady friend does not like to go to the gynecologist, which I can totally respect. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the thing is, the thought of her having to go really squeaks me out, and I, it makes me really uncomfortable. And I'm, I know it's important. I'm a pretty big feminist, and I, you know, I like boobies. I want her to take care of her boobies and the rest of her lady bits. So, uh, my question, I guess, is how can I encourage her to go? She really needs to get the point that it's been a long time, and I know it's not you know, my responsibility, but I care about her. And um, so, how can I encourage her to get an appointment and go when secretly it really makes me 
extremely uncomfortable to think about that that position for her to be in. You're a huge feminist. You're one of those feminist men who loves lady bits and boobies and is squicked out by the idea of a woman getting unnecessary and routine health checkup for her vagina and a labia and vaginal canal and having her cervix taken a peek at and having those swabs done. Uh, yeah, you are America's finest feminist man. Um, look, there's these studies out there. I've cited them before in the past. that show that people in long-term committed relationships, people in marriages – often live longer and are healthier than people who aren't. And I think a huge part of that is because when you're with somebody and you're sick, they will force you to go to the doctor. Your husband or your wife will make an appointment for you and drag you to see someone because they get sick of listening to you bitch about feeling bad or your hearing being off or your eyes being blurry or whatever. You bitch and bitch and bitch about – a health problem long enough and your spouse is going to get so fucking sick of listening to it, they're going to drag you to the doctor. It doesn't sound like you're in a committed long-term relationship. I don't think you even live with this woman. But if you really want to you know, play the lady bits hero, you could make an appointment for her and just announce that you have found a gyno through your other friends who perhaps takes her health insurance and you made her an appointment and you are going to take her. Not going to drag her, you know. You say, "I will take you." I am going to take you, and it means, of course, that you are asking them, please, to consent to be taken. And most people will, who are reasonable will consent to be taken to the doctor once someone else has stepped up and made that appointment for them and found the doctor for them, the doctor that they need to see. So, if you're truly concerned about this woman and her health, talk to your other lady bits having friends about their lady bits doctors. Get a good recommendation. Give that phone number to your friend who isn't seeing the Lady Bits doctor often enough or at all and encourage her to make the call because you care about her and her Lady Bits. Don't mention that you are squicked out by the idea of her being in the stirrups at the Lady Bits doctor because that's not going to be helpful. Keep your mouth shut about that. Sounds like she's squicked out enough already at the, at the thought by herself. She doesn't need your seconding the squickedness. So just give her the phone number. Encourage her to make an appointment. Ask her again if she's made the appointment. If she hasn't made the appointment, you call. Make the appointment for her. Tell her you have made an appointment and get her to go. That's what friends are for. Hi, Dan. My mother uh, was a pretty messed up person. She's a cocaine addict and an alcoholic and emotionally abused me and my sister for years. I've come to terms with this. Like I'm in my mid-20s now and I don't have anything to do with her because she's a toxic person. But... Um, I'm, I have a boyfriend, uh, who we've been together for a year and a half. And one of the things we bonded over was how we both have really messed up mothers. So as we continue our relationship stories come up and one of the things that I shared with him recently was a couple of experiences that I had with my mom when I was, uh, hitting puberty, she would ask to, you know, see my crotch so she could see my pubic hair and, once asked me to masturbate in front of her. Um, she also did strange things with my sister, like got her to sleep uh, in a cot at the end of her bed. And then uh, in the middle of the night, my sister woke up because my mom and stepdad were fucking. So like needless to say, like this makes her a very fucked up person and I'm aware of that. Um, but my boyfriend, after hearing this, uh, called my mom a pedophile. And... While I understand that, like, the, 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 the label doesn't matter, doesn't really change how I feel about it, doesn't change, like, whether I have anything to do with it or not, I just want to know what you thought about that. Like, 
She never physically touched me or to my knowledge, my sister, but her behavior was undoubtedly inappropriate. Like, does that a pedophile make? So according to Marian Webster, pedophilia is defined as a sexual perversion in which children are the preferred sexual object. And Wikipedia expands on that a bit by saying it is a psychiatric disorder in which an adult or older adolescent experiences a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to prepubescent children generally age 11 or younger. Is your mom a pedophile? I don't know. Who knows what was going on in your mother's sick and twisted and fucked up head when she ordered you to masturbate in front of her. We don't know what pleasure she was deriving from that or what pleasure she was deriving from forcing your sister to sleep at the foot of her bed while she fucked your stepfather. It's certainly sadistic, cruel. It's sexual abuse. It's childhood sexual abuse. It's a violation. It's a betrayal. And you know all of this. You've cut your toxic mother out of your life and good for you for having done that. I don't think having done that that you need to expend much energy getting drawn into debates with your boyfriend about exactly what labels you should apply to the mother that you have cut out of your life. He sees pedophile. You may not think that that label is an accurate fit. It doesn't really matter though at the end of the day, does it? Whether she's a pedophile, which is entirely possible. Who knows again what was going on between her ears when she was abusing you and your sister. Whether she's a pedophile or she's just a sick and twisted, demented, messed up, damaged person who abused her daughters sexually. It's kind of irrelevant. She's an abusive, toxic, shitty person that you have rightfully cut out of your life. You don't have to – spend the rest of your life trying to figure her out or label her because it's impossible because you will never know because we can't know what was going on between her ears. It's unlikely she was a classic pedophile. Well, most pedophiles are men. It doesn't sound like she ever sexually abused you. She was sexually interested in you both in a way that was hugely inappropriate and abusive and toxic and vile and she's gone. She's out of your life. Pedophile may be a label that your boyfriend is comfortable slapping on your mother because it helps him wrap his head around why she might do the things to you and your sister that she did. If pedophile isn't a label that you are comfortable slapping on your mother because it may not be accurate or because you didn't feel molested even though you were violated, brutally violated, then that's fine too. Whatever works for you, whatever labels you want to apply to this person who is gone from your life. Whatever labels your boyfriend wants to apply, he is also free to apply and you don't have to debate it with him. And finally, congrats to you for getting out. Uh, you sound like a, a healthy, well-adjusted, smart, thoughtful person who's emerged from really distressing circumstances. So good for you that you had that strength, that inner strength and you were able to tap it and good for your sister that you're both able to recognize that there wasn't something wrong with you, that there was something wrong with her. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old male, and this question isn't really about me, but mostly it's about uh, my mother-in-law and this guy that she's been seeing. And the reason why I'm calling about this is because I feel like I'm kind of stuck in the middle and don't know what to do exactly. So this guy that she's been seeing, he's my business partner. We just 
started getting our business going and we're not really good friends. We we met not too long ago, but we're good partners. And uh, we decided not to involve personal and business life together because, well, it shouldn't. You know, that's how things end up wrong. Anyway, um, so my mother-in-law, I've known her for about seven years. She's very um, deceiving, I guess you could say, when it comes to relationships and couples. She's, she's not very committed. And she always has multiple partners, but the partners don't know about the other partners. And I think that's what's going on right now. And I think this guy is catching on. And I guess she doesn't tell him the truth about everything. And I don't want to be the one to tell him what's really going on. But he's kind of disclosing to me some information that he thinks it's kind of odd. And I, part of me wants to tell him, dude, this is how she is and this is what she does. Be careful because you're a good guy. But another part is telling me to back off and not say anything and just let things go the way that they are. So I really don't know if I should say anything, keep it to myself. I feel like I'm caught in the middle. My gut instinct is to tell you to say something to your partner, to, to give him a heads up, to pull him aside because your mother-in-law is going to be out of your partner's life pretty quickly. Like that relationship is going to end. Your relationship with your partner is going to continue on indefinitely. You are in business together. And what better way to demonstrate your trustworthiness, the priority you place on your relationship with him, your desire to protect him from harm, that you're a good guy, that he's gone into business with a good guy who's got his back, than by giving him a heads up about what a shitty fucking lying sack of shit your mother-in-law is. That said, your mother-in-law is also going to be in your life indefinitely. That said, you are married to your mother-in-law's daughter or son and if – your business partner goes and confronts your mother-in-law about what he now knows because you told him and it comes out that you were the source. That could really fuck up your relationship with your mother-in-law and with your wife or husband. And so it seems on second thought that the cost you could wind up paying here may be too high. That this is probably a case where you should hang the fuck back and keep your mouth the fuck shut unless you're asked a direct question by your business partner. Unless he comes to you and says, your mother-in-law is busting my balls. I don't know what's going on. Is this her MO? If he comes to you and asks you to level with him because he's getting the runaround or feels as if he's being lied to by – your mother-in-law, then you're in a position where you can confirm what he already knows or suspects rather than tipping him off to something he didn't see coming. And then you can beg him not to rat you out to your mother-in-law who you are stuck with for the rest of your married life. And this is the shitty thing about what your mother-in-law is doing. This is the shitty thing that a lot of people who are serial cheaters do. The boyfriends or girlfriends, they come and go. The friends and relatives are always there and then they get to know. They meet the new Mark basically. They meet the new Patsy. They meet the new victim and they know what's coming. They know that this person is going to get stomped on, used, abused, lied to and in a way, they get walk. They go into a closet for the cheater, for the abuser, for the user. They, they closet themselves. They pretend not to know what they damn well do know. 
They may even feel affection toward this person who's come into the life of this person, this other person that they know, this relative, this friend, this mother-in-law, that they know to be horrible to all of their romantic partners. And here's the new one. Here's the next one. And you like this person or you go into business with this person knowing that eventually they're going into the wood chipper. And what a burden it is to have to keep your mouth shut, to look at this person and think what a kind and decent person and how unfortunate for them that they're dating my mother-in-law, how unfortunate for them that they're dating my son, how unfortunate for them that they're dating my brother, right? Which means that the sort of shittiness that a serial cheater – I do not – sometimes people accuse me of smiling on serial cheaters, on, on users and abusers. I do not smile on serial adulterers or serial cheaters. One of the shitty things serial cheaters do is not to the persons that they're cheating on. They do shitty things to the other people in their lives, to the people around the edges and margins of their relationship, to friends and relatives, children, parents who have to suspend their dif- disbelief and put on a party face and smile and nod as they watch the next victim march toward the emotional wood chipper. And that's not fair. It's not fair to the person that the cheater is going to chuck into that emotional wood chipper and it's not fair to everyone else in the cheater's life who has to make that choice between keeping your mouth shut or speaking up and risking shitloads of drama that you'd rather avoid. Cheaters suck. Hi, Dan. For my entire life, I've dealt with a compulsive overeating disorder that has caused me to have a lot of stress, shame, and pain tied up in my body and by proxy my sexual experiences. I have just joined a 12-step program about two months ago and have been abstinent from my compulsive overeating behaviors for several weeks now, and it feels great. I'm calling because there's another aspect of my compulsion that I don't know how to deal with and that I'm afraid to bring up to the 12-step group for fear of rejection or lack of understanding. Until recently, I was also a fairly active participant in the theaterism community. Since I was a kid, I have always been attracted to larger men and women. And as I grew older and found these communities, this attraction deepened and solidified within the constraints of the fetish. When I first began to masturbate, I could only come to images of fat men and women. And to this day, all the porn I watch is related to fat bodies, fat people eating, and fat people gaining weight. I think psychologically this helped me ease the hatred I felt towards my own fat body. This didn't become paradoxical until last year, after gaining a ton of weight inadvertently, I started posting photos of myself on fetish sites and started to get a lot of attention. I ended up meeting and hooking up with several guys in the community who made me feel great physically, but even more terrible emotionally. I was with men who wanted me to gain weight and who appreciated my fat but I knew that deep down I had no desire to gain myself and that I just wanted to be at a normal size. This year, I vowed to stop dealing with the men in this community after a particularly hurtful experience. I also gave up masturbation for Lent to clear my head while I began on the path to recovery. But Lent is ending and I've been getting hornier and hornier. My question is, while I know I want to lose weight, I don't want to deal with the men in this community anymore, I'm still attracted to fat men and women and I still think gaining and overeating is very hot. I'm also a bit nervous that my resolve will cave when I'm feeling lonely and horny and these men are all I can really turn to since I haven't had much luck dating outside of the fetish community, presumably because of my current size. But will this impede my recovery? Should I stop, try to stop watching these images? Can I reset my sexuality or reduce the focus on my fetish? I guess I don't know how to figure out what role my fetish plays in furthering my addiction and my self-image problems. 
and there aren't really any analogs I can think of. Anyway, any advice you can offer would be much appreciated. Joining me by phone, Paul Vasey, PhD. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Lethbridge, and he has studied feederism. Uh, thanks for jumping on the phone today, uh, Dr. Vasey. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So what can you tell us and, and tell people who aren't familiar with feeder gainer and this sort of fat fetish scene uh, about the kink and about the community? Well, you can think of feederism as a fat fetish subculture of a broader fat admiration community. And this fat fetish subculture, it specifically focuses on erotic feeding and gaining weight. So the broader community, fat admiration, um, the, those, the members of that community are sexually attracted to fat individuals, but they nonetheless emphasize that all individuals, including themselves, can be attractive at any weight. And the specific focus of their sexual attraction and arousal isn't on feeding and uh, eating and gaining weight per se, whereas the individuals in this fat fetish subculture feederism, the, the, that is their, their sort of uh, focus. So they, they, the, the members of that subculture break down into two basic groups, feeders and feedees. And feeders are individuals that state that they're sexually attracted and aroused to the idea or the act of feeding their partners, and encouraging their partners to gain weight, even though they often recognize that that's an unhealthy activity. And on the other hand, the feedees, they're individuals who state that they're sexually aroused to the idea or the actual act of being fed, uh, eating, and gaining weight. Among heterosexuals, it's typically the uh, the man who's the the feeder and the woman who's the feedy. That that that's usually how it plays out. Now you, you say that some feeders uh, are aroused by this, even though they they're aware that it is not uh, necessarily healthy for the feedy for the person gaining the weight. Is it really a case that they're aroused by it despite the fact that it's unhealthy, or are many of them aroused by the fact that it is unhealthy, that there's a kind of sadism here, that there's a destructive sort of kink at play? Because, you know, I've watched some feeder gainer stuff. I wrote a chapter in uh, Skipping Towards Gamora, a book I wrote many years ago about the fat acceptance movement, about BBWs. And I met, you know, BBWs, women who are part of the fat acceptance movement who had gotten out of relationships, not with FAs, fat admirers, they were fine, but with yeah. feeder gainers yeah. who made them feel like they were trying to kill them, that this was about controlling and destroying them. Right. Well, you're 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 correct in pointing out that when when you're you're talking about feederism, there seems to be these parallels with sexual masochism. Um, there seems to be these masochistic undertones to, and and sadistic potentially undertones as well. But it's you know there's so little research done on on, on this topic that it's really not clear whether feederism is just a new thematic variation of sexual sadism and sexual masochism. It could be that feederism is a form of something that sexologists would call morphophilia, which is a peak erotic focus on particular body characteristics like fat. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, there might even be a third possibility. You know, given that feederism involves sort of the integration of unusual erotic activities, eating or being fed and gaining weight with a focus on particular body characteristics, fat, it's possible that feederism might be this 
totally distinct uh, paraphilic sexuality. Um, so taxonomically, in terms of where it fits with the other paraphilias, um, these are these, there's these three possibilities, and there's kind of more research is needed to pin that down. I um, remember watching a video uh, when I was looking into feederism myself, and it was this woman who weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds and basically was bedridden, uh, and she was in this feeder gainer relationship with a guy who would bring her food. And what I what I saw was someone who had been rendered completely helpless in the same way that right. somebody who was spending all their life in a cage in a dungeon in a basement was was helpless. This person couldn't leave the room. This person couldn't function mm-hmm. and was completely mm-hmm. and entirely dependent on her feeder for everything. And Right. So I, I think you have to kind of distinguish between – the, the behavior of, of, of overeating versus a sexual preference for overeating. That would, this, it's the second one, the sexual preference for overeating, which would be, uh, feeder, which would be an aspect of feederism. That person might identify as a feedee. Um, so the, those, those, those two things are, are, are distinct. There's, there's the behavior versus the, the sexual preference. A bit like, to give, you, to give you a parallel, a bit like bestiality versus zoophilia. Bestiality is, is the act of having sex with an animal. That doesn't necessarily indicate that that's the person's peak erotic experience. For a zoophile, that indicates that that's what they prefer over all else. So it's very possible for, uh, it could be possible, for example, for a woman to be in one of these relationships and the man that she's in the relationship with could be well-defined as being a feeder because his peak sexual arousal is to feeding this woman and uh, making her gain weight and watch and documenting the weight gain. Uh, she herself might not find that um, sexually arousing. She, her motivation might just simply be because she wants to please her partner or keep her partner. Okay, so getting to the caller's specific concerns, like she yes. underwent you know tremendous weight gain. She has always been uh, attracted to fat men and women. She posted photos of herself to fat fetish uh, websites and got involved with pe- people basically in the fat fetish community and didn't like the way these men were treating her. Now you know right. it needs to be said that there are people who have a string of bad luck in the non fat fetish scene. There are people who date just average people, regular people they've met through OkCupid who have like many bad experiences in a row and so it doesn't necessarily prove that everybody in this scene is a piece of shit. Just because you had three or four pieces of shit in a row uh, doesn't mean you should write everybody off and I don't want to make everybody in the fat fetish community feel as if we're calling them all uh, dirtbags or sadists. Uh, But she feels that there's something about her fat fetish – uh, desires that reinforces her uh, relationship with food, her self-destructiveness, the, you know, the, her problem with her weight, getting past a, a healthy stage. And her question is, can you uncouple that? Like there are these desires. She's obviously aroused by feeder gainers. She's aroused by big bodies and nothing wrong with that. It's not like she will lack for options for big people to be with in our culture. There's plenty of heavy people, right, out there to date. Right, right. But she's worried that continuing to sort of throw herself into her desires, uh, her attraction to big bodies is going to reinforce her unhealthy patterns around choice of mate, around eating herself, around her weight gain and wants to know if you can uncouple that, if she can break this link. Right. Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. First of all, in listening to the speaker or to the caller, I, I would really like to sit down with her and really parse apart what is it that you're sexually attracted to? Is it larger people? Is it uh, 
eating? Is it being fed? Is it uh, gaining weight? Is it some combination of these things? Because each, each of these activities is potentially different and doesn't necessarily signal that someone's a CD. Uh, the other thing I would say more definitively is, look, if you're going to date someone who is a self-identified feeder, then you're entering into a relationship where you, you need to be aware, look, this, this person is being upfront about what their peak erotic turn-on is. It's feeding their partners, watching their partners gain weight, documenting that. Um, and you need to go into a relationship with, like that with, with open eyes if um, your potential feeder partner is being upfront about that. And I would say that uh, if they are um, and you want to lose weight, then you need to make a choice for a different kind of relationship. Is it possible for someone to reset their sexuality if ever since basically she says adolescence, puberty, since she first began masturbating, it's been about largeness, fat bodies, being fat herself. Yeah. Is it possible for her in adulthood to reset her sexuality? Well, I'll, I'll say this. Look, the, the, the majority of sex researchers who, who study sexual orientation and are, are respected for, for their work would say that it is not possible to reset your sexual orientation, that that's something you're sort of born with. Now, that being said, there might be some debate about whether there was more wiggle room in terms of resetting se uh, sexual orientation or sexuality for women versus men, because there, there, there is uh, evidence in the literature that uh, women's uh, sexuality tends to be more flexible than men's sexuality. Isn't that around choice of partner? Isn't it around gay by straight as opposed to, uh, or lesbian by straight, as opposed to kinks and fetishes? <clears throat> Aren't kinks and fetishes kind of hardwired in a very similar way to sexual orientation? That a woman may be more fluid around sexual, sexual orientation or choice of partner, but will a woman with a particular kink or fetish be similarly fluid around that? Well, I would agree with you that kinks and fetishes, there's there's lots of you know sex researchers who who think maybe we need to start thinking about these these things as um, aspects of sexual orientation, just like whether you're attracted to a man or a woman. And if that's the case, uh, there 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 isn't really any evidence that women any more than men can change their sexual orientations. They can change you know, elements of their 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 sexual behavior, uh, but not necessarily their sexual orientation. So I guess given, given sort of the state of affairs in terms of evidence and research, I would say I would be skeptical about whether you can reset, this, this caller can reset her sexuality so that she's no longer attracted to uh, heavier individuals. But that being said, if she chooses to enter into a relationship with a feeder, a self-identified feeder, that person's being very upfront and honest about what turns them on and what they need in a sexual relationship. And if she wants to lose weight, then I'm assuming that she doesn't want to provide that and she has to look elsewhere for sexual partners. Okay, so the trick is, uh, as ever, when it comes to kinks and fetishes and, and, and a healthy lifestyle, is if you've got a kink or a fetish that has some inherently you know, potentially negative health consequences if fully indulged or realized. You have to figure out a way to incorporate what 
turns you on in a healthy way into a sex life that isn't going to kill you, right? Yeah, and I think that the bottom line is, and this, this pertains to everyone who is sexual, regardless of whether they're straight or gay or have a kink or not, if you, everyone, everyone's different in terms of their sexuality. They're different in terms of whether they're like men or women. They're different in terms of their activity preferences, positions they like in bed. Uh, if you want to have a happy sex life, you need to be upfront with your partners about what you, uh, what you like. And then you have to think about what they like and whether you can provide that. And I would also encourage the caller not to limit herself just to, uh, you know, fat fetish communities or uh, specifically fat like dating pools, because there are plenty of like people of all sorts of shapes and sizes all over OKCupid okay out in the bars running around. That you don't have to only draw your partners from the self-selected group of people who are seeking out fat people as fetish objects. That you can go out in the world, go to a regular party, and meet another fat person that you happen to be attracted to. And run off together. There's no. We have an obesity epidemic. There is no shortage of people of size out there who are just incorporated into every walk of life, every community, every social scene, every bar, every dating website. And so, you know, the caller, I think, if she's had trouble finding people who view her as a whole human being as opposed to a large human being, needs to get out of the sort of fat fetish ghetto. Right. You know, there is a larger fat admiration community that in which the, the male partners would not be interested in feeding, would not be interested in erotic weight gain, um, would not be sexually aroused to uh, this caller eating. And so one option would be for, to look for uh, partners in that broader fat admiration community that isn't focused on erotic eating and weight gain. Dr. Paul Vasey, uh, professor of the Department of Psychology at the University of Lethbridge. He studied feederism. Uh, Dr. Vasey, is there a place where people can go to read some of your research about feederism? Uh, they could go to my website, which would, they would be able to find by Googling my name and the University of Lethbridge. And there's pages on my website which would list the articles that I've published on feederism. Dr. Vasey, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you very much. This may come as a shock to Savage Lovecast fans, but there are other advice columnists out there in the world that people, other people, sometimes turn to for advice. And we thought it might be fun to start inviting these other advice columnists onto the Savage Lovecast for a new segment that we're going to call Second Opinion. So welcome to the Savage Lovecast, Emily Yaffe, Slate's Dear Prudence. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our first Second Opinion. I hope I can uh, provide some controversy. So how long have you been doing Dear Prudence? Eight years. And, and, and how do you enjoy your, compared to me, you're a newcomer to the like, advice biz. <laughs> how are you enjoying it? Come on. I mean, you know, is there a better gig in the world than telling people what to do? No, there isn't. This is why, in my case, people ask me, are you ever going to be done with Savage Love? And I say, no, they will pry my column from my cold, dead hands, just like they pried Ann Landers from hers. Are you in it for the long haul? I don't think that's up to me. You you may have more control over Savage Love than I have over Dear Prudence. I'd like to think I've got a lot more years, and I hope I do. But but Dear Prudence belongs to Slade, right? There have been other Prudence I. That's right. I'm the third Prudence, speaking of Ann Landers. Uh, the previous Prudence was Marco Howard, who was uh, Ann Landers' daughter. And the first Prudence was uh, 
Herb Stein, who was the head economist for the Nixon administration, and Father Ben Stein. Okay, sometimes Slate is just really fucking weird. <laughs> they got an economist. I always love telling that one because people can't <laughs> believe it. I don't believe it. Um, famously, you know, one of your most famous responses ever at uh, Dear Prudence was to a pair of male twins who are in an incestuous loving relationship. Um, and you got a little grief for your response. What did you tell them to do? Well, first of all, I think there was some grief on your end that they wrote to me and not you, right? <laughs> yeah, I was totally fucking jealous. I read that. I'm a fan. I'm like, I've always been a fan of the genre. I grew up reading Anne Landers and Abigail Van Buren, Xavier Hollander in Penthouse and the Playboy Advisor in Playboy. I was, I was reading my brother's Playboys and Penthouses for the articles. And I, I loved it. And I love your column. And I read your column. And I saw that letter to you. And I was like, how could those boys have not written to me? That's my letter. Well, I thought that was the case, too, and I was ready to pull the letter when I saw you publish it ahead of me. So when you didn't that week, I was ecstatic. <laughs> so what did you tell those boys to do? Well, they were not asking me, is this right or wrong? They were saying, look, we're about 40 years old. We're twins. We started our relationship as teenagers, we tried to stop. We went to colleges, different parts of the country, but we couldn't stop. And we've been together for many years. Their issue was that they live in a state uh, where there's gay marriage. And so now their family members are saying to both of them, when are you going to meet a nice guy? Because these guys live together. What's going on? You got to go out and date. And so my letter writer did not want to tell his family why, and his twin brother did. So their question was, what do we do? And you told them? My advice was, there are some things that aren't worth telling, and they can tell a version of the truth, which is, I know uh, our living situation seems unorthodox, but we're really happy. We're really happy this way. And that's the way we want to keep it, which is all true without saying the heart of why. And so, you know what I would have told them to do? I would love to know. Send me video. <laughs> that's where we differ. <laughs> but we're on the same page in a couple places. Sometimes it's funny. People think you're sexually conservative and I get – people write me every time you say something that's vaguely sexually conservative. And anybody who reads me and really reads me knows that I'm a little conservative too around the edges – but you're much more liberal than people give you credit for. You're down with people smoking pot. You tell people that if they had an affair and they regret it and they didn't get caught to keep their mouths shut and take it to the grave, right? Thank you. Well, I mean, when I said I want to provoke some controversy, it's, yeah, how conservative I am, which, thank you for pointing out, I'm really not. I'm conservative, and maybe we're on similar pages on this, when it comes to the kids. And I don't mean, oh, the kids. I just mean, if you, if adults want to do, consenting adults want to do whatever they want to do, go do it. If there are kids in the mix, you can't just do whatever you want to do, sexual or otherwise. And I think uh, they need to be protected. But I'm, yeah, I'm almost anything goes if that's what people want. Me too. Now we've lined up a couple of uh, Savage Lovecast questions for you. One that's like right over the Dear Prudence plate. 
One you're going to knock out of the park and one that's a little challenging. So uh, you ready? Yes. Here we go. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm calling from London in England uh, with a question about my parents-in-law. I got married uh, a year ago and very happily married to a really good guy. Um, and although I had spent a bit of time with my family-in-law um, before we got married, I'm obviously seeing a bit more of them now, the difficulty is this. My father-in-law is just awful to my mother-in-law. He, he is awful to her. I'd kind of seen a bit of it before we got married. Um, he just shuts her down whenever she tries to tell a story over dinner. or uh, You know, he's always telling her that she's boring people or that she's... Uh, you know, that she's being idiotic and she just kind of takes it and is obviously hurt and it's kind of, I, now that I've just come back from spending a week with them, um, you know, he rolls his eyes at everything she says and I don't, you know, he's not, you know, he's not beating her or, uh, you know, sort of slagging her off in, in public. He's just poisonous to her. What well, it really bothers me. I, I, don't really feel like I'm kind of the newest member of the family. I don't really feel like I can do anything apart from, you know, if she brings up a topic of conversation, he shuts her down. And I try to get in on the in the conversation on her side to kind of show her to support that way. My husband and my brother-in-law don't do anything about it. They just kind of let it happen. There's like a little awkward moment when their dad has just said something awful to her. Um, and there's just a little moment of awkwardness. And then they try and change the subject. I don't know what to do about it. I, I don't really feel like she and I are close enough for me to, to bring this up in any way. That seems like criticism of their marriage. They've been married for, you know, 40 years. Like, I don't know whether these things are so ingrained that they just can't be changed, but I feel like I have to do something. I can't just sit there and let him attack her. So my, you know, you're going to give the second opinion. So I'm going to give the first opinion. We'll see if we disagree. My take on this is there's really not a lot you can do to change long established patterns in a 40 year marriage, however distressing they are to you. If I were the caller, what I would be worried about is I would look at my husband as he sits there silently while his father abuses his mother and think he's been observing this all his life. How's he going to be treating me in 10 years if that's how he lets his father treat his mother and doesn't seem to bother him at all? If I were the caller, I'd be more worried about who I was married to and less worried about who her mother-in-law is married to. I think that's a good point. If he's not an abuser, he may have in some way absorbed this and said, this is not the way to go, but there's no intervening in this thing. There, there's a high price to pay for trying, especially if you're a child, to try to intervene with the adults. So you quickly learn, uh, I'm staying out of this. So I don't totally fault the son for not stepping up. As you say, this is a pattern of many decades for him. One thing that really bugs me about this is the to universalize this, it's the, oh, that's just the way he is. That's just the way she is. And families excuse the most appalling behavior over that. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think there is a little something that can be done around the edges. Uh, I think this daughter-in-law, when Myrna's talking and Archie says, oh, shut up, we don't want to hear your story, she can turn to him and say, Actually, Archie, I was very interested in what Myrna has to say. Excuse me, I want to hear the end of her story. 
I also think she can go to her husband because sometimes you can get a shift if you see a long-standing situation through new eyes, mm-hmm. and she can say, "You're probably so inured to this, you're not noticing." This is really, really disturbing. This is beyond bickering. I, I actually, my stomach acid starts flowing when I'm there, and I wonder if you can speak up in some way. I'm. This is a case, though, where I think that if she did speak up, if she came to Myrna's defense in the moment, that Myrna might leap to her husband's defense. This is often the case in sort of long-term, multi-decade, quasi-emotionally abusive relationships, like crazy-ass Stockholm Syndrome, where the person who's being abused is defensive of and, and identifies with their abuser. Emotional abuse. I mean, I'm not saying physical abuse here. I'm not saying it's sort of she's being smacked around or anything, but – she may feel as if her marriage is being attacked if her daughter-in-law blows in and starts criticizing these emotional dynamics. That's a very good point. And also she could know if there's some defense of me, I will pay later. But I think, Mm. as I say, on the margin, if Myrna's telling a story and Archie stops it, you can say, actually, I want to hear the end of it. I mean, I think... that's safe enough to see what, you know, does Myrna say, no, he's right, I'm stupid, or, and also the level of her terror might mean, indicate what really goes on in private, that it's actually a lot more dangerous than what they're seeing. Oh, that's so dark. That makes me so sad to even contemplate. Well, I, it, it, it's a really sad situation, and it's, you do. I'm sure you get these kind of letters when you get the letters and you and you just hear from people who've taken it and taken it and taken it for years. And you know, she's, maybe she's a woman who never works. She's terrified to walk away, and she's stuck. Well, here's hoping her husband drops dead and she has a good ten years on her own. <laughs> she gets to be a beloved grandmother and a single mom to her sons for ten years. Oh. I bet she's waiting the day. Sometimes, do you ever have those dark thoughts? You get letters and you think the only solution here is somebody getting in a car accident and dying, that there's no good answer. There's literally no answer. Do you confront that sometimes? I get letters. I think, you know, you, you, you write an advice column, you print letters. Everyone thinks, oh, you've got all the answers. And you think, oh, no, it's just I don't print the questions I do not have answers for. And I get those. You, you have just exposed our secret, Dan. I don't think you should have done that. <laughs> the International Association of Advice Columnists is going to have you whacked for that. But you, you get those two letters where you go, there's nothing oh I can say. God, constantly. And, you know, one thing that gets reinforced over and over in doing this job, I know you see it too, is the kind of serenity prayer thing. Um, you do what you can do, and there's so many, you know, I'm talking about what you say to the people stuck in this situation, and then you reach a point. You cannot save someone who doesn't want to save him or herself. If that partner, parent, child wants to drink him or herself to death after you've done the intervention, after you said, I can't be with you if you're in this condition, some people will drink themselves to death, and there's nothing you can do. There's something we can do about this next call, though, I think. Hi, Dan. I'm Tech Savvy at Rescues. I'm a 34-year-old woman living in a large northeastern city. I had an experience recently that I'm hoping you can provide some insight about. Once a month, I treat myself to a massage at one of those chain day spa places. I've been going for about eight months and had several different massage therapists. There's one that I like better than the other, so I try to make my appointments with him. Last time I went was the fourth or fifth time I'd seen him for an 80-minute full-body deep tissue massage. 
this time, the massage was a lot more full service than I was expecting. It started out as usual, but at the end of the massage, as I was lying on my stomach, he was working on my legs, and he just kept going up the inside of my legs. He checked in the entire way. Consent was explicitly clear and repeatedly given. It would never have occurred to me to ask or expect a happy ending, but this was super hot. Although the whole thing was surprising, there was one thing that I thought was especially unexpected. At some point when I was getting close to coming, I think I reached out and grabbed his hip, the details were fuzzy. I was a little distracted, but he moved my hand to his penis over the pants and I sort of vaguely rubbed it. A couple minutes later, he pulled out his penis and put my hand back on it. I gave what can only be described as the world's worst hand job, something that in normal situation would have had no effect. But after a couple of minutes, he told me he was going to come and he came on the table next to me. Things wrapped up. He told me to take my time getting up and he left the room. I got up shaky, adrenaline filled and realizing I had lots of decisions to make. How should, how should I tip? Should I make my next appointment like I normally do? Should I make it with him? Is that weird now? Anyway, I tipped a little more than usual, but not exorbitantly, and I did make my next appointment, realizing I could always call back and change that later. A little time has passed now, and I'm absolutely good with everything that happened. I still think it's super hot, but I have some questions. First, how common is this? I'm very clear on the difference between a licensed massage therapist and a massage parlor or someone who works there. I know that this guy would be super fired and probably lose his license, but clearly this happens. So how often does this kind of thing happen with licensed massage therapists? Is it usually therapist initiated or client requested? And if it's the therapist who initiates it, how do they figure out who to approach knowing the risks? How should you tip after a happy ending massage that was unrequested but thoroughly enjoyed? I have another appointment coming up, and I've got to say I've never been nervous about getting a massage before. I'm really curious often, also how often this guy does it, but I know you would have no way of knowing that. It doesn't really matter. I'm just curious. And my last question is about the fact that he came too. Is this usual with a happy ending massage? Anyway, any insight you could give me would be great, greatly appreciated. So prudence, Emily, when you go and get a massage and the masseuse all of his own volition treats you to a happy ending, what do you tip? 15, 20, 30 percent? I am just, I, I was so blown away by what do you tip someone for giving him a hand job? <laughs> I mean, that is the heart of this thing, isn't it? Well, uh, I enjoy okay, I'm the second opinion. What do you think about this whole thing? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, we're going to hear from a lot of angry massage therapists because they always want to draw a big, fat, black line between people who do happy endings and, you know, massage parlor masseuses and, you know, professional massage therapists who would never in a million, billion, zillion years touch your junk or get you off because that's not what it's about. And, you know, there's an intimacy, I think, to uh, this kind of body work. It's not sex work, but it is body work. And clearly this guy either – this is a move he pulls out regularly, that he busts this out constantly, which I doubt because he wouldn't be employed for long because he would sooner or later do it with the wrong client or he sensed something about this client and her openness to this and and there was a sexual spark there and a connection and so he went for it gradually and got her consent at every step. She's very clear about that and so what would I tell her to do? I would tell her to keep going to see him. I would tell her that to tip 30%. I would tell her to ask him, do you do this for all your clients? Like if somebody's put their hands on your labia, if somebody has gotten you off, 
I don't, I don't see why you would be hesitant to ask that person a million questions. Like you can't violate them with questions after they've treated you to this. There's an intimacy and a connection there. I think you have a right to sort of make an appointment and then look at them and say, that was great. It's why I'm back. Just curious. Do you do this for all the girls? And how do you avoid getting fired? And thanks. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in anticipation of what you're about to say, like tip him for giving you a hand job. some of us enjoy giving hand jobs. It is a pleasure not just for the giver but also the receiver – or the give, not just the receiver, also the giver. Oh, man. I, I so do not go for massage so I can <laughs> get someone else off. So don't do that. Do you go for massages? Yes. Oh, I never And I've do. had – oh, well, see, I've had many um, – male massage therapists. I mean, this, I have such a different point of view from you on this. I mean, I, I just heard it and I was like, no, no, no. Although I do understand how when you're on the table, you want to quote James Joyce and say, yes, yes, yes. I think this guy does it all the time and he, he reads bodies. So he's moving up and if he were moving up my legs, he would feel the tension uh, in my body, because you're in this very vulnerable, is he do? Uh, uh, and I would freeze up. He'd feel it, and you know, would not go. He'd be back. At, he'd be back at your ankles in a two seconds I, flat. Oh yeah, I'd get that big toe really worked on. Um, <laughs> yeah, she enjoyed it. I just think this is bad news, and. Wait, wait, wait. Two, wait. Two human beings had orgasms that they both enjoyed, and they were perfectly consensual. What's bad news about that? That's the good news of the risen dick as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I don't get why that would be bad news. I mean I think it, it was reckless on his part because if she had reacted badly, if she had complained to her, his employer, he could be fired. If she had you – know, she says she enthusiastically gave consent the whole way. What if she you know, had given consent reluctantly the whole way because she felt like she couldn't uh, say no and she deferred her way t- into a, a situation that made her really feel violated? That would have been hugely fucked up. But none of that came to pass. She got off. She liked it. He got off. He liked it. Happy, happy people. I think if they want to do it again, they have to take it off the table at wherever place of employment. I just think, see, I have this perspective of the naked female on the table with the strange man doing something for you, but in a totally professional context who is not going to make you feel uncomfortable, who is not going to start tickly uh. wickly you. Uh, and I mean, I, I was, had a massage once where the guy, <laughs> it was the guy who, thank goodness I didn't know till that moment, said, you have giant varicose vein on back of your leg and then slapped it really hard. I was like, what the hell? But I'm lying there, you know, in my real life, I was like, cut it out. I'm not paying you for this. And were you slapping me? And I just lay there like a lox. So uh, I just have this, no, this guy is very experienced at this. Yes, it was around. He knows how to arouse. So uh, I, I just think. Okay, so you're actually you're you're expanding my POV, I think, because you you're saying that as a woman who gets massages, and I don't ever get massages because I don't like to be touched. Um, so, as a, but as a woman who gets massages, you don't want that line blurred between erotic massage and professional massage any more than professional massage therapists 
claim that they do because exactly. when you lay down in a, somebody's massage studio for a professional non-erotic massage, you don't want any blurriness at all. You don't want that to be a place where people can opt in to any sort of erotics because it makes you, as the naked woman on the table, feel less safe. Totally. That's why I just had this instinctive, yeah, even though this went somewhere, it wasn't supposed to go, and it was pleasurable. This is just, this is bad for the profession. This guy is... And bad for uh, you, because what if you're his next client? So it, exactly. It, it creates then a pattern he, or an expectation yes. in his mind that sets the next woman up for who may not be into it for predation? Well, I think so, because... Then, then there's this mind game going on. If this is what he does, and you're lying, well, he hasn't touched me there yet. But geez, no one's ever went up there, and it's and it actually, and he's good, so it feels kind of good. But I don't want to say it's feeling too good. It, it just totally creeps that. This letter made me think, oh gosh, you know, uh, just stick with women, and that's not right. I mean, there. I like getting deep tissue massage, and and guys can really pummel you. So I just think bad for the profession. I actually had a letter (laughs) similar to this. It was from a guy who likes to go to uh, very low cost uh, storefront Asian massages, Uh, and it was a deep tissue massage. He says, you know, so I go to these places all the time. It's like fifty bucks, half of what you'd normally pay went into a new place, and at the end, she just almost, you know, says, you want this, but her hand was on my dick, and I came, and that's not what I wanted, but I didn't stop her, but it was so fast, and he was writing to me, he's married, to say, do I tell my wife? I mean, I feel like I did, I said, of course, yes, I said no, because, you know, if a husband comes home and, and, and tells you said that, no, this right? part of you is going to be... You couldn't say no. You you couldn't stop this. And why are you telling me this? And I mean, I believed him. And this letter shows that this kind of thing can happen. You know, he was more subtle, but also, you know, this guy was really appalled, even though he did have an orgasm. Okay, so he shouldn't do this anymore. We don't want to blur that line because we don't want women who are getting massages from men to feel like they could upgrade it to something more in the moment and 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 leave a woman feeling violated who didn't enjoy this or welcome it. Uh, but what should this particular caller do about this particular massage therapist? Should she continue to see him? Should she rat him out? Should she see him on the condition that he'd do this only for her? <laughs> I don't think she should rat him out because she was complicit. I don't think she should see him at this place in a professional way. If she wants to get in touch with him and say, we can make each other feel good for free and you know, I'm, I dig you, fine. I bet he wants to be paid for this and nothing's going to happen. You still didn't answer the question of whether she should keep seeing him for massages with happy endings. If she wants to, it should be a private arrangement, not through whatever place, professional place she has been going. Because she owes it to other women who go get massages to reestablish that dark, thick black line between erotic massage and therapeutic massage. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Emily Yofi, Dear Prudence, reader at Slate.com. She does epic online chats at the Washington Post on Monday and Tuesday that I am addicted to. And your column goes up on Thursdays. Is that right? Yes. And Emily does videos, but you're not in the podcast advice racket quite yet. No. That's, move, that's for you. You're not moving into this space? Oh, maybe. We'll see. 
<laughs> well, I'm a big fan. Uh, like I said, I love the genre and I read around and yours is one of the best. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today and being the first second opinion. Thank you. And I am a fan of yours. So I really appreciate this. Hey, Dan, my name is Jake. The issue that I have is I'm a serial cheater, but I don't think I don't feel like there's anything wrong with it. I live a pretty good life. I take care of my, my kid, my wife. I do everything I need to do. And I'm always there for them. And my wife and I, we just don't have um, a romantic connection. But I honestly don't feel bad about um, cheating. I don't have guilt. I don't have remorse or anything else. In fact, I'm worse when I don't cheat. So the question is, what exactly do I do? So you say there's not a big sexual connection there between you and your wife, uh, your, your parents together, you're there for her. You're actually a better partner to her when you're getting some on the side or when you've cheated because uh, you're sexually fulfilled and whatever else. How would you feel if she was fucking other dudes? Um, actually, that came up. And I was hoping that maybe she was fucking another guy. Because then that would make me feel better. Because then I could at least say, you know what? At this moment, she's just not next very sex director. And we actually talked about that. And I was actually trying to get into the idea of, of having an open relationship. Uh-huh. Because what, what I realized, it's not sex. I, I realized at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with sex. It's the fact that we are not emotionally connected. So why are you married? I, I still love her. I love everything about her. And, and, and in my head, some of these other things are just smaller things on, on a bigger picture. Wait, wait, you love everything about her, but you don't have an emotional connection to her? And you're not sexually attracted to her? No, I, that's, that's wrong. I am 100% sexually attracted to my wife. And, but I just realized recently that the problem is that we're, we're not making an emotional connection. So it's more so like I'm emotionally connected to her, but she may not be emotionally connected to me. Uh-huh. Do you and your wife still have sex with each other? Yeah, we do. But what I, what I, find, what I find is I feel like more to her, it's more of an obligation than an actual act of this is something I definitely want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that more so becomes the problem because at first I thought it was just a sexual thing, but then after I started examining some other issues, like gift buying and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like we're literally saying within the last year, she bought me one gift, bought her six. The year before that, nothing. The year before that, nothing. And the excuse is always the same. I just didn't know what to get you. And I'm like, that, that's a problem. So what, what I started to realize after I wrote to you, I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe it's not really a sex thing. Maybe the biggest issue is that she's not having as much of an emotional connection. Uh-huh. Or she's kind of a bad, careless, inattentive, inconsiderate partner if she can't scrape it together yeah. to get you a gift. You, you have children, though. Does she have time to run out shopping for you? Are you a hard person to shop for? I can't believe we're talking about whether she gets you gifts or not. Like, if, if, she, if, she, got, if she got you a mink coat, would you have more fun fucking her? No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I really don't think. Like, I would sleep with her. If she came home every day, it's like, hey, we're ready. It wouldn't even be an issue for me. I'd be like, oh, we're already here. You just tell me where I need to be right now. But, that, but that's the issue. It's more so I'm coming to her, and then she's not necessarily reciprocating. She doesn't have that need or that want to go back on the other side. Okay. So, so, so duty sex turns you off. Like dutiful, like milk the husband sex doesn't do it for you. And at least when you're sleeping with some woman, 
who isn't your wife, who knows she's sleeping with some other man's husband, you can be assured that that woman is fucking you for the fun of fucking you, and that's it. Um, yes, but I don't want to. I, I don't mind duty sex. It doesn't bother me in the least because realistically, if I if I only had a dollar and had to get a, something to eat, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm just not going to eat anything. Uh, okay, then why, if if duty sex works for you, then why are you cheating on your wife, who's totally happy to have duty sex with you? But that's more so what I'm saying. I think the issue is that we don't have that emotional connection. Whereas with a mistress that I have, we actually have an emotional connection. And initially I thought it was just a sex issue. Mm-hmm. But later on I realized it was not a sex issue. That's part of the actual bigger symptom. I'm so confused. Okay, I, what, what I honestly believe, I don't think she has an emotional connection to me, mm-hmm. and that's why she's not necessarily having sex with me and doesn't necessarily have the need to have sex. Does that make sense? Okay, so can you get this to an honest place with your wife where you aren't cheating? Where it's sort of a don't ask, don't tell agreement or an op- honest, open relationship? Because you're in an open relationship. Your wife is in an open relationship. She just doesn't know it. Yeah, and I've, I've tried to have a conversation with her. I even came to her and said, hey, listen, I don't necessarily want to cheat on you. And I'm letting you know now that this may become an issue. And then her mom had the same talk with her. She's like, listen, if you're not doing this for this guy, believe me, someone else will. Uh-huh. And I've even started going to therapy to handle the same, to handle all these issues. I even told her about it. I was like, "Listen, I can't, I can't deal with, I can't deal with with your non-attachment. Like, I want, I want a wife that'll sit on my lap. I want a, I want a wife that'll kiss me when I get home. I don't want a wife that's just like, oh well, I, I guess it's time to have sex, and so be it. And I'm not going to turn it down, but that's that's not what I married you for." Okay, so there's no emotional intimacy. You guys don't have a connection. You don't have a romantic connection. There's no passion. No, not, not, nothing whatsoever. And so you're seeking that, that passion, that connection, and sex with other women. Yes, essentially, yeah. Okay, here's what you do. Here's what I would advise you to do. If you're not going to leave her, and maybe you shouldn't. It sounds like you have young children, so maybe you shouldn't leave her. Maybe you should suck it up and stick around and be parents and partners together uh, and take care of the kids you created with her uh, in one home. At the very least, you need to go to her and say, there's a disconnect here, like romantically, passionately, sexually. If and when the guy comes along that you feel that for, you should go for it. But we should stay together. And if and when the woman comes along that I feel that kind of connection with, I'm going to go for it, but we're going to stay together because we're going to have an affectionate, uh, respectful companion at marriage, be parents and partners. But clearly sex and romance and passion and intimacy and touching doesn't define our marriage or the connection that we have. So let's not let what we have be destroyed by what we don't have and what we can get elsewhere if we do indeed ever get it elsewhere. And then you're sort of – backdating a permission slip for yourself, even though you've gotcha. been kind of a dog, right? Gotcha. And you're handing her the same permission slip. You're saying, what you don't feel for me, a man may come along that you feel that for. And when that man comes along, go for it. Just don't leave for it. 
and I'll do the same. I'll go for it, but I won't leave for it. Talk to her about the difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. Social monogamy is maintaining the appearance of being monogamous, which puts limits on how out of control you can get outside the relationship. You're not going to run around town. You're not going to date other people openly. You're not going to publicly humiliate her by letting everybody else in her life know that you've got a piece on the side and she's a fool and being fooled, that you're going to keep it super discreet. And you would expect that she would do the same for you, that you guys can honor each other by maintaining the appearance of monogamy, even if you're not monogamous. And just like throw that – what do you have to lose? Just throw that all on the table and you may get a permission slip from her that she backdates to whenever in exchange for the permission slip you're giving her. Like let's stay together. Let's be parents and partners and friends. But obviously this isn't – that emotional, sexual, romantic passion isn't what our marriage is about. But our marriage can continue and it can be fulfilling in the ways in which it works. We can derive fulfillment from it as friends, as partners, as parents to our child or children together. But the sexual thing, that will probably happen outside the marriage and that doesn't mean the marriage has to end. Gotcha. And I would just lay that all out in front of her and then she gets to make an informed choice about whether to stay with you under those conditions or not. Huh. I will. Thanks. That rocks. (laughs) Good luck to you, man. You're a really self-aware guy. Some people are going to jump down your throat, I'm sure, in the comments and and, and call you a dog. You're a really self-aware guy. I think you're smarter about this than you've uh, allowed yourself to be. I I think you're smart and insightful, and you sort of stumbled into this insight because of the ways in which you were behaving. Uh, And I don't think it's it's a rationalization for you. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a truth that you've come to. But now you need to bring your wife in on that truth. Give her the same freedom that you've taken for yourself and then decide if you guys are staying together going forward, if that's going to work for both of you. Gotcha. Thanks, man. That's awesome. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a follow-up to episode 394 uh, about the woman who had her uh, friend's bachelor party on Pride Weekend. Yeah, you're right. The official reason that we stated about uh, bachelorette parties is that they were coming into our gay bar and celebrating our right that we couldn't have. But I cannot believe that two-thirds of the reason was not really drunk, obnoxious straight girls. Because around gay guys, they seem to lose that extra bit of tact they might have around straight guys. And it just gets so loud and obnoxious. Hi, I'm calling about episode 394, the 26-year-old gay Texan living in Arizona. And I basically had the same experience you described with two exceptions. One is that when my dad suspected that I was gay at the age of 17 and got physical, I moved out. And when my mom realized that I did it because of that, she didn't offer to uh, follow me and said she kicked my dad out. It's uh, 40 years later now. I've been partnered for five years, still very close to mom, and I've reconciled with my dad. In my case, it got better. And we're going to leave it there. A big thank you to Dr. Vasey and, of course, to Emily Yofi, dear Prudence, uh, for being guests on the show today. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Emily Yaffe on Twitter at Y-O-F-F-E Emily at Yaffe Emily. If you're going to be in Atlanta, Georgia on May 
30th and 31st. Come see Hump at the Plaza Theater. For ticks and info, go to humptour.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.